From the University of Bristol, you are listening to Research Frontiers. Hello, and welcome to Research Frontiers, a podcast series from the University of Bristol. I'm your host, Ruby Lotlavinia, and throughout this series, I'll be joined by a collection of Bristol's thought leaders, taking a deep dive into the research at the university, which is changing the world and enriching the education of students who study here. Our contributors will include some of the university's most inspiring minds and the students who learn from them. Throughout these conversations, we'll uncover the transformative power of research, both on our society and in solving global challenges, as well as in the future education of students. Our focus for this episode, however, is mental health and education psychology with relation to autism. I'm joined by Dr. Felicity Cedric, a lecturer and lead researcher at Bristol, who specializes in the areas of mental health and autism and education. I'm also joined by an alumna of Bristol University, Sarah Boone. Felicity, just to kick off, could you introduce us to your research and what you've been covering in recent and current projects? My research focuses on autistic people's experiences of relationships, mental health, and how gender affects those things. So looking at gender differences within autistic people. Previously, I've done work looking at things like teenagers' friendships and autistic women's friendships and romantic relationships. Currently, my work is more focused on mental health, and I've been looking at the mental health of autistic students at the university and looking at training staff so that we can support our autistic students better. And how did you find yourself involved in the area of education and psychology? Do you recall the path that led you here? Yes, I took a slightly non-traditional path to getting here. So my undergraduate degree was actually in archaeology and social anthropology, but I became really interested in the social anthropology side of how childhood can be different in different cultures. And from there, that led me into psychology and psychology of education, looking at how childhood can be different for people who are developing differently within our own culture and sort of looking at autism in that kind of framework. How do you find the connection with autism and neurodivergence in your studies? So it was a a combination of my academic life and my personal life. So I was studying cognitive anthropology and looking at how development can be different in different cultures. But at the same time as I was doing that, one of my very good friends was going through the process of getting her own autism diagnosis in her 20s. And I became very passionate about finding out why she'd been missed, why she hadn't had the support previously. And I was kind of using the things I was learning about in terms of different cultures to think about the differences within our own society. And so I did a master's to convert to psychology so that I could pursue that that interest and that passion. And that's led me to where I am now. You've covered it slightly there, but is it possible to maybe just expand a little bit more on how you made the decision to go down the academic route as opposed to going down, say, the more practical route? for example, going straight into work? I wanted to do the conversion course initially because I was planning to train to be an educational psychologist so that I could go into schools and try and support particularly those autistic girls and gender diverse children who I knew weren't being picked up by the traditional systems and being recognised very well. But then when I started trying to do that background research, I realised there was almost no research out there on which to base better practice. So I moved over towards wanting to do the research that I was hoping to base practice on that didn't exist. Um, And that's still kind of what drives the work I do now is trying to improve the evidence base and find the evidence for what works for autistic people so that we can put it into practice 
across education and across society. Sarah, let's bring you in. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little more about your own studies and what you're currently involved in as a very recent graduate of the MSc? Sarah, let's bring you in. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little more about your own studies and what you're currently involved in as a very recent graduate of the MSc Psychology of Education programme? Yeah, so I think how I kind of got involved in the programme was after finishing my undergraduate, I did end up working in education, although that wasn't what I initially planned. And just noticing that, you know, how students don't all learn in the same way. And there's so much more to consider beneath the surface than you initially think. So I think that's originally how I got interested in the subject area. Shortly after I applied, I'd been accepted onto the course. Um, that's when I was one of those girls who was missed and got my autism diagnosis myself at 24. So that's definitely kind of really helped as well doing the MSc, guide my career and kind of get a job as well. The next question was sort of about what your journey was into this area. And I think you touched on it a bit with your answer, but did you have a clear path in mind even for when you started your undergraduate studies? Is this where you thought you'd be or has it changed? Oh, no, it changed. Like my undergraduate, again, is completely different from psychology. It was a management degree. And I think because I had three years between finishing my undergraduate and starting the master's, and I think that's kind of more I figured out what direction I wanted my career to go in. So which is why I did the MSc conversion. Felicity, just going back to you, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about how autism has been covered in recent history and how advances in research and study have changed attitudes towards autism. So I think autism is in a real state of flux at the moment as an Mm -hmm. academic discipline. There's been a very clear set of standard approaches to autism and autistic people for probably the last 70 years. And it's translated into some of the stereotypes that culture tends to hold about autistic people in often very harmful ways. There's a lot of stigma and a lot of stereotypes about autistic people out there. In the last five or 10 years, that has been hugely challenged and is being changed. And that has come mostly from autistic people and the autistic community challenging researchers, getting them to think about things differently, going out and becoming the academics themselves. So there's huge advances happening at the moment. I think it's one of the most kind of rapidly changing and developing fields or areas of psychology that I know of, which is really exciting. You've both touched on the idea of women getting later life diagnosis, and that's something that I've seen certainly more widely. I wonder if you could just talk a bit about that and how this recent research is now helping people who maybe have completely misunderstood their whole lives. Autism was assumed to be a male condition right back from the the 1940s when it was first identified. And that's because we do tend to see more boys who get a diagnosis and boys and men tend to get their diagnoses earlier in life because they fit with the stereotypes that people have or they're more likely to fit with the stereotypes people have. And so because those early studies had majority male participants, people built up a majority male picture of what autism was. And that meant that the diagnostic criteria was based on that picture. And then unsurprisingly, the diagnostic criteria based on boys and men are better at noticing and identifying boys and men. So girls and women kind of got excluded from that conversation from the beginning. It's only really in the last 20 years that it started to be recognised that actually autistic girls and women do exist and they exist in much greater numbers than people previously thought. Often they can have a slightly different presentation. So we tend to talk more about kind of an internalising or an externalising presentation of autism where Externalizing is kind of the historical stereotype. So things like 
expressing frustration through meltdowns or physical behaviours, very obvious discomfort with things like eye contact, quite clear social difficulties sometimes. Whereas an internalising presentation is more when people try to hide the difficulties or the challenges they're having in understanding what's going on or in making friends. They're more likely to be anxious and internalise the feelings that they're having. Felicity, kind of from an academic point of view, and Sarah, maybe from a more practical point of view, what do you feel is not being done for autistic people in the wider world of education? And how do you think these potential shortfalls could be made up? That's a big question. So I think kind of training teachers in the modern understanding of autism and in the neurodiversity approach to autism, rather than seeing it as kind of a pathology that needs an intervention because then not only are you helping get those diagnoses earlier, which is really important for accessing support and just for self-knowledge and kind of understanding who you are in the world, which is important, but it can mean that schools are then able to support their neurodiverse learners better and their autistic learners better if the, the staff have that training. So actually one of the projects I'm doing at the moment is putting together training for university staff on how to support autistic students at university because there's lots of aspects of university that are tricky for everybody but potentially more tricky if you're autistic and at the moment there just is a real kind of lack of knowledge. I think most people are now kind of aware that autism exists, but it's moving beyond that awareness and into understanding and acceptance that's going to make the biggest difference for autistic people in education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think with the education side of things, the environment is so important. I think it's why this is like systemic changes are needed. I'm speaking really idealistically here, but you know, I think schools kind of almost just need to change how they operate so that when an autistic student comes in, you know, chances are it's not going to get to the point where their needs are not being met and then everyone starts talking about intervention and it's just an environment where you know they feel safe belonging and you know they can just go and learn which is the point of school but so often there's so many barriers in education for autistic students that are quite often at the root of it systemic even if it doesn't necessarily look like it on the outside and I think they wouldn't just help autistic students I think sometimes they'd help a lot of other students as well whether they've got another neurodivergent condition or they're neurotypical so I think there's so much to do in terms of schools being able to actually meet children's needs and I think as well feel some level of emotional safety so I think quite often that's almost non-existent and people wouldn't typically think that about the school but it's very different when kind of you're autistic. You can be quite vulnerable socially among your peers. You can be completely misunderstood by teachers. And again, that can escalate pretty quickly for some people. I think most people just do see autism through those stereotypes and it's just let's make them appear less autistic and then they'll be fine. But that has huge consequences on mental health. So it's looking at the wider picture, you know, like what's the impact of this later on down the line? I guess what you're saying kind of speaks to a trend over the last 20 years, which is, you know, it, it's not a group of people being talked to, it's a group of people actually advocating for themselves and being part of the research and diagnosis. I don't know quite what the word is. Um, the revolution? <laughs> um, I wonder if you could just talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I think that's one of the biggest changes and definitely one of the drivers of all the change we're seeing is the fact that more and more, particularly early career researchers, are really committed to doing what's called participatory research. So when you work with the people that you want to 
understand, you want to help to design research that is not only more accessible for them, but research that addresses the things that they care about and that matter and that will actually make a difference. So that's why, or it's part of why there's been a big shift towards understanding things like masking, because from autistic people, we know that a lot of autistic people are working very hard to mask a lot of their natural behaviours and responses pretty much all of the time they're around other people. And that's exhausting. And we now know that the more of that you do, the worse your mental health is. So it's having a really, really major impact. And it's something that until a few years ago, until researchers started really listening to autistic people, we just weren't looking at. I know my projects now are all as participatory as I can make them. And Sarah, what brought you to study at Bristol? Was it somewhere you'd always Mm -hmm. wanted to study or were there other factors involved? And what keeps you here? So in terms of the programmes, I think it was in those kind of in-between years between undergraduate and starting. And again, kind of life and work experience since then is what brought me specifically to study psychology. But I think as well, when I was kind of looking at different universities, I think I really liked the course at Bristol. And as well, because obviously um, it's an accredited master's and you have to study certain subjects. Most other universities, you had almost no options in terms of choosing what you could study, where Bristol you could. And that was something that was quite unique about Bristol that I really liked was having some kind of level of flexibility and being able to kind of focus on that area of interest. But also, I think Bristol's a lovely city and I think it's a really nice place to study and live. So I think that also definitely attracted me to Bristol as well. How how about you, Felicity? What brought you to Bristol and what keeps you here? (laughs) so similar to Sarah I knew I really liked the city I actually did the master's I'm now the program director for quite a few years ago now so I knew I loved the city and I knew the department a bit although there'd been quite a lot of change in the nearly a decade since I'd been there I knew that I really liked the university I liked the focus on research so I saw this as an opportunity and as a place where I could develop both sides of of my career because I really love teaching and I think actually one of the nicest things is getting to do research and then tell people about it and try and you know talk to people about it teach people about it teach them about why I think it matters and why hopefully it does matter and the impact it will have so yeah it was that the fact that our teaching is so research driven and research aware was the thing I I really like about being here and teaching on this course. Sarah, has the master's changed the direction of your life in any way? Yeah, I think it definitely opened up opportunities that wouldn't have been there before. Because even for my current role, I have to have a relevant degree. And obviously this master's is very relevant where my undergraduate wouldn't have been. So I, I doubt I'd be in the current role I am. I think also I do advisory and consultancy work kind of in the autism area and sometimes that is quite academic. So I think as well, having studied psychology at master's level has kind of been really invaluable in that and has kind of opened up those opportunities as well. So it's kind of different aspects of my career. It's certainly helped with for sure. And yeah, it's definitely opened up opportunities. You know, I'm really enjoying, you know, it's kind of put me on a path that I wanted to be in. So yeah, the master's definitely helped with that. And Felicity, Are there moments in your own research of which you're particularly proud? What would you like to shine a light on in your own work? So I think one of the pieces I've done recently that I'm really proud of was looking at autistic people's communication preferences. So me and another researcher at Bristol called Philippa Howard worked together to 
ask quite a lot of autistic people, I think it was nearly 200 in the end, to rank their preferences for mode of communication in different settings. What we found was that people really, really hated using the phone. Autistic people really hated having to make calls or having to rely on calls in pretty much every setting that we gave them. The rest of the answers were a bit more varied. Generally, the better they knew the people they were interacting with, the more likely they were to say, I prefer talking in person. So friends, family, established colleagues, for example. If it was something official, they tended to prefer communicating in writing, particularly email. And we found that out, not just from the rankings, but because we also asked them, why have you given this answer? So in that kind of qualitative response is where we found some really important things that we wouldn't have known otherwise. So people saying, you know, they hate using the phone is a fairly expected finding, potentially. Lots of us don't love phone calls, particularly unexpected ones. But actually, in their reasons for why and what impact this had, people were saying things like, I've missed out on healthcare because I cannot make the phone call to organise the appointment. Or I've missed out on counselling to help with my mental health because they wanted to do it over the phone and that I just can't do it. Actually talking to people revealed the massive impact that communication mode is having on people. Our recommendation would be that any organisation, any institution, any public service should have an option that is not just reliant on phone calls. Because if you do, you are excluding a significant portion of the population. You know, between one and two percent of everybody in the UK is autistic. So I think that's been one of the pieces of work I've done recently that feels like it has really major implications for policy and for practice, which I think is really important. Okay, great. And, and how do you hope your research will be realised in the world? Do you have goals and aims in mind? Or do you think it's going to be a vastly different landscape from now in the future? I am sure it will be better than it is today because we are moving in that direction. I would hope that my work can be part of that move in the right direction. So something like that phone study I would hope that it does just become part of the evidence base for making sure that every public service has a live chat option rather than relying on phones, for example. And in terms of the training for higher education staff, I would love it in an ideal world if that became mandatory. So that if you are interacting with students at university, you should have training on autism and neurodiversity and how to best support and interact with those students. So that autistic and neurodiverse students have the same experience of university as anybody else, so that it no longer results in it being a barrier or being a difficulty. Something I'm getting from both your answers is a sense of optimism that wasn't there, say, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. I wanted to ask how a programme of education like this contributes to that. I hope we create students who are making positive change in the world. As I said, particularly because a lot of our students are people who are working alongside their studies. And so they are people who are in schools, who are in mental health services, who are in youth work charities. And so hopefully the things we're teaching them are kind of having a positive change from the moment they learn the lesson, in effect, because the next day they go back into work and they can think, actually, I know about sensory overstimulation now. So when I've got an autistic child in my classroom who's really struggling, I will turn off the overhead lights and hopefully that will help them with their sensory stimulation and their emotional regulation a bit. 
also because we are a conversion course once you've graduated from our course you're qualified to apply for educational psychologist or clinical psychologist training and hopefully we're sending people on into those diagnostic and clinical roles who've got this really informed grounding to that practice I guess to a more practical level I guess my experience is as a student, I think it's kind of really essential to have these conversations. Uh, I'm very much kind of involved part of the wider autistic community. And I would say almost every autistic adult at this point I've spoken to is traumatised in some way, whether it's education, healthcare services, or they've got several bad experiences. And again, that really needs to change. And I think there is that starting, that shift. And there are certainly programmes that are aiming to address those um, issues, but it definitely is in its infancy. Teaching about current research and the latest, I guess, the shift as well from the kind of the pathologizing of autism and seeing it as a disorder by default without actually taking into consideration the autistic person's reality of their own autism. I think that's something psychology has certainly missed. It's made assumptions from the outside, um, has caused a lot of harm. I think being aware of assumptions around autism and people you know who don't think and behave perhaps in typical ways is kind of a huge thing as well going into practice with that understanding of what these people or kind of what we're experiencing and as well you know what can actually do to help I think as well it's really important to understand that history just so that mistakes don't get made again and so that the practice that's done harm in the past isn't repeated Felicity, you mentioned before that you noticed a gap in the academic literature and you went out there and you addressed that gap. And I wonder how your research now feeds into your teaching and feeds into the course itself. In a very direct way, uh, I'm just about to run for the first time this year a master's unit that is specifically about understanding autism and autistic people and thinking about how we improve practice in schools. I've run a version of that with our undergraduate students as well for the last couple of years. So that's very definitely very direct impact on my teaching. More broadly, we as a team are in the process of reviewing our psychology masters to try and follow more of those neurodiversity affirming principles and things like participatory research being more built in. So we're updating our teaching in line with the newest research all the time and not just sort of updating individual slides with individual studies, but actually thinking about how we approach the whole way we teach and the kind of concepts we're bringing into our teaching. So yeah, I think it's a fairly direct and quite all-encompassing way that the research is coming into our teaching and comes into the programme. And Sarah, as a recent graduate, I wonder if you could talk to that. In terms of what you're teaching, you know, I think I remember we were always encouraged to read the most recent things coming out in psychology as well and if we were focusing on older stuff it's kind of understanding and critiquing why perhaps it wasn't right you know what issues did it create what problems did it solving as well and I think that's really useful because obviously research as well is about filling those gaps and I think that was really helpful in terms of learning how to see where the gaps are and then what you can do I guess more specifically in the dissertation to fill a gap in knowledge So then you're building the knowledge that can go on as well, which is really what academia is about. And Sarah, can you offer any words of wisdom or advice so far for prospective students Mm -hmm. or lessons you've learned which could come in useful? Good question. (laughs) I think I know a lot of people had this preconception for starting the courses. Oh, I've never studied psychology before. But 
if I'm being honest, like I'd never studied psychology before. And I think as well as I think if you're really motivated to get in that area or you're really interested in the subject, I'd say go for it as well. But kind of understand the level of commitment a master's is. Uh, so whether you're doing that full time or part time, I did it full time. And basically you have to treat it like a full time job in terms of how much you put into it, I think, to really get the most out of it. And as well, obviously you need work life balance. But, you know, it's quite intense doing a whole degree in a year, I will say. But again, it was worth it for me. And I'm really glad I did it. So I think as well, it's just thinking about if you really want to do it, do it. But think about kind of practically how can you make it work with your life? So because I know that with people who did it part time as well. So there's always that option too. Felicity, by way of rounding things off with an eye to the future and what's to come, what are your hopes for the future of study and education, psychology and neurodivergence? My hopes for the future or sort of what I think is coming down the line is a real increase in autistic led research. And I think that's going to continue to really massively impact the benefit that research has. There's been a lot of research that's kind of been because people were interested in it kind of from an academic perspective. And now we're starting to think about what it is that matters in the real world. And I think there's huge amounts of opportunity within that framework, within education and looking at neurodivergence in education and trying to take kind of a strengths-based approach to neurodiversity in education and look at, at what is it that these children and young people and students are good at. What is it about their neurotype that we can help them learn to work with to succeed and to thrive rather than saying that these aspects of how your brain works are wrong because they're different and we need to change them. So I think, yeah, that move towards a strengths-based approach in education is going to be potentially transformative for those young people coming through our education system in the next few years. It's been super fascinating to chat with you. Thanks for sharing your time and knowledge with us on Research Frontiers. Cool. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Research Frontiers from Bristol University. We hope you found inspiration, information, answers and more in all of these great conversations. Don't forget to check in over at www.bristol.ac.uk forward slash study forward slash postgraduate for more details on Bristol courses and information about Bristol University. Also, keep the podcast nearby. Subscribe to Research Frontiers wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And please do share with people who might benefit too. Thank you for listening to Research Frontiers. Research Frontiers.